Kate Sanka here coming to you, well, pre-recorded from uh, Lansing, Michigan. I'm joined by Jeremy Van Hoff. Hello, everyone, in snowy Okemos, Michigan. And Adam. Hello. We might be getting snow. Okay, so snow might be on TBD. the... Snow, snow's on the, on the horizon, I think. Um, also, joined by Bruce the Cat. Winter's so, coming. Oh, wow. Okay, watch out for that. Um, so we are on episode six now, season one, um, and this is part two of assessment. So last week we, or last episode, I should say, we started talking about assessment and the types of assessment and what that looks like, um, and considering it, uh, from a place of accessibility or care. Uh, so we're going to continue that conversation tonight, um, with, specifically continuing to focus on assessment as it relates to accessibility um, and UDL um, and looking at it applied across formative, summative, and experiential. Um, and we'll also try to get a little bit into how are we crafting our accessible assessments. So what are some examples? What does that look like? How do we assess? I think that's a, a good way to take it away. Um, why don't we start looking at formative? Do either of you want to kick off and kind of think about what language do we use when we're, what kind of accessible language, I should say, do we use um, when we're creating formative assessments? What does that look like? Um, yeah, I'll jump in. Just to kind of kick things off, I think that when we, to me, formative assessment is, is the sweet spot for high quality instruction. And if you can't integrate formative assessment into what you're doing, it's, it could be problematic for the overall learning environment. So I think it's critical that if you're, when you integrate formative assessment, you do it in such a way that every, it's approachable to everyone and there's a sense of equity. When I, and you folks jump in, but when I'm thinking of formative assessment, I'm thinking of kind of a three-tiered system where you've got peer-to-peer um, -peer interaction and the ability for students to interact with each other and provide each other feedback, um, teacher-student interaction, where you've got the teacher, you know, implementing some kind of low stakes formative assessment so that that teacher can gauge the overall level of understanding of the, of the collective. Um, and then you've got student to teacher feedback as well that can serve as a formative uh, check. So the students can provide feedback about how well the learning environment is meeting their needs and perhaps even offer some suggestions about how the instructor can change the way that the information is being presented so that it's more meaningful to them. So I think when we talk about language in, in a formative concept, context, you need to think about it in those three relationships. So let me talk first about the peer-to-peer, -peer, and then maybe we can, if, we, if there's uh, time we can dig into the other ones. To me, I think one thing is that it falls to the teacher to facilitate an environment such that students can speak to each other um, and to to kind of train students up on how to speak to each other equitably. Equitably. Do I? Do either of you have any thoughts about like what a teacher can do to get students speaking to each other with kind of a an eye for accessibility 
So, yeah, I mean, one of the things I think a lot about this, so one of my favorite ways, so I'll, I'll start by saying, I think before we dig into summative, eventually, like summative gets a bad rap. And like, I feel like that's kind of challenging. But formative, as you point out, Jeremy, is like the most powerful space here. And one way I've seen this broken down, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Deep Think's work at all, and Significant Guide to Learning, and, and uh, that book that I don't have the info, but we'll, we'll include it in the show notes. He calls these kinds of assessments like more formative assessments as being educative, and the more summative assessments that you get towards the end uh, of or that are kind of more evaluative as being auditive. And I think for me, that's why what I think of when I think about peer-to-peer kinds of feedback and things like that, um, that can be really helpful when you're looking at forward-looking assessments. And that's like one of his big themes. It's like, how do you plan your assessments in such a way where they they kind of feed, they feed forward the types of learning and the types of things that you have to change? So I think like just the timing of that can be really important and having peers weigh in there can help somebody help the student to get feedback on where where they're performing or or not performing up to a certain standard um, but it can also help the other students to see other examples of what that work might look like yeah i like that that concept of formative assessment as educative it kind of speaks to what we termed it last week or last episode as a formative assessment as education or assessment for learning mm-hmm. um, the whole purpose of it is that there's this embedded instructional component in it, right? And to me, one of those instructional components is is simply speaking with the students about the the proper way of communicating with each other. Um, So when I was in the English classroom teaching uh, writing, a a large part of this peer-to-peer stuff um, was student, you know, like peer evaluation of written work. And I would spend, you know, hours training students up on how they could properly give meaningful critical feedback on other, on other students' writing. And that wasn't so much so that they could be, you know, solely so that they could be editing the papers appropriately, but that they learn from that process in and of itself. I think the other thing with that too, so the, so I, I came across this resource again this week because I was working with a faculty member who, who didn't have a lot of time to meet, but I, I had this workbook I found at some point of, uh, from Think uh, that he uses, at, it's like a free resource, I believe on his website. Um, he talks about two other things I think are really key to this peer-to-peer component, criterion standards. Um, so the notion that students have a very clear idea of what they're giving feedback on and how they're supposed to give feedback when you're introducing the assignment. And this digs in a little bit into rubrics and standards and assignment descriptions a little bit, but those things are important uh, within those, those summative assessments, but they're even more important uh, if you have students engaging with each other, I think on it at this point. And he also has like, I mean, there's so many different uh, kind of uh, tools for, for thinking about how to give high quality feedback. Um, he has four points that he includes with his that I think are helpful that that dig into uh, what you would want students to do as well. But thinking about feedback as being frequent, immediate, discriminating, and loving. And I think that's kind of interesting because like, I think that helps people, like those four kind of qualities are things that I think we would be trying to get peers uh, to, be, to be thinking about when they're giving feedback to each other. 
Could you repeat those for that's um, yeah. So it was frequent. So giving feedback um, in a regular ongoing uh, timing cycle. So that might not come up all the time with peer assignments, but I think, I think that idea of having an ongoing peer review process is important. Uh, immediate feedback. And I think the other way I've seen that referred to is it being timely. So if somebody, you know, if you're giving feedback, it makes sense for that to be quick. So you could, you know, roll out a second draft of that assignment or, or do a second turn in process or something like that. Uh, discriminating. So this notion that it's, it's tied to standards and it makes clear between two levels of performance within a given standard. Um, so that idea that students are kind of being objective about that with, with previously kind of uh, described uh, uh, standards for that. And loving, which I, I kind of think is really interesting. I was talking to a faculty member earlier about this and he's like, and I haven't met with him since, he, this is an email note he sent me earlier, but he's like, what does it mean to have be loving in how you give feedback? That sounds like, I don't know what that sounds like, but I don't like it, you know, and I was <laughs> like, and it's so funny because his description, this description that Fink gives, I think is really nice. He says, be empathetic in the way you deliver your feedback. And I think when we're thinking about how we learn while we're, we're learning and being assessed, um, I think that notion of empathy is really important because it, it builds in both this construct, constructive quality, but also this notion that, you know, we're all people um, and we're, you know, we're making mistakes all the time and, and we make mistakes too, like, is, is a really important element to that. Yeah, I, I think that's huge. And I want to go back to, I mean, Jeremy's kind of the first question he posed is, um, you know, how do we get students to, to respectfully do this to each other? And obviously empathy is a big piece of that. Um, and I think in our next, if I believe, uh, or if I'm remembering correctly, um, our next episode, we're going to talk about classroom culture. So I think this, yeah. this will come up again, certainly. Um, but one of the things that I've done in uh, a class that I taught last spring is I take it to the students. So I think we sometimes have a tendency to be like, yeah, let's try these things and here's what could be good. Here's what we think. This is what we should do. Um, but sometimes ask them is kind of the best way to go about it. So um, what I had students do at the start of that semester, um, I, I put big, you know, the big post-it notes up around the room um, that were labeled as the worst class they'd ever had, the best class they'd ever had, and then what they wanted to learn out of the class. Um, and then gave each of them individual post-it notes. And so they jotted down as many as they wanted, you know, and then they had to get up and, and put them into the respective um, larger kind of uh, pieces of paper. Um, and it was really revealing, right? So the what we think makes a good class might not actually be what they think makes a good class. Um, and so as we're talking about um, how to how to think about being loving in the assessment we're giving or teaching with care or teaching with empathy. I mean, I really could see doing this exercise and specifying aspects of a course. Um, so when I did it, it was, it was a small class. I only had four students. So I had a lot of um, nice kind of flexibility to try some things. That was also the, also the class where um, we wrote the syllabus together and they got to determine how they wanted to be assessed in general in the course. Um, but uh, I could see in a course doing that and really, really specifying an aspect of it, right? So if we're talking about assessment, which we are, um, you could do that. What was the, what was the kind of 
I mean, I'm using best and worst. You could use whatever adjective you want. You know, what was the worst way you've ever been assessed? What was the best way you've been assessed? Um, and really opening that up for conversation in the class and then setting the expectation. Here's, hey, here's what you as a class came up with. You know, here's what I'm willing to to do this semester with everybody. Um, and how, here's what you're all interested in. Um, how do we get there? What, what do we accept as a group? What do we not accept as a group? What are kind of our, our you know, course culture um, kind of rules or expectations? I think to build off of that just really briefly, like I, it feels like to me that taking a step like that in your class too would help with the overall validity of the assessment. And we talked a little bit about that in the last episode, but it seems like the more eyes you could get on piloting and, and kind of validating the the way that you're looking to assess and to make sure that that aligns with what you're actually setting out to try and do intentionally. Um, I think that would probably help with that too, because it seems like students would also get more buy-in to what that looks like, which would create access and to help the other students who, who may or may not be familiar with that type of assessment or the specific expectations that are associated with that. Yeah. And it ties in with those concepts, both of, um, discerning feedback and loving feedback too. I mean, if you can have conversations in advance about how students interact with each other, um, and I think equally importantly, if you as a teacher can model those behaviors in the way that you interact with students' work um, in, in being timely and uh, loving and discerning with the way that you provide feedback, uh, that's gonna be important. And what you're doing when you, so Kate, you're having a conversation with students you know, in a broader class, maybe you can't afford, you don't have the affordance to have a conversation about it, but you provide uh, material for students to do this. Maybe it's sentence starters. Maybe it's, uh, you know, suggestions of, of phrases that you require or suggest that they include in the feedback that they're providing to each other. Um, this, some kind of tool that you put in place so that there's this norm across the classroom that students are all going to uh, live by that is discerning and loving and, and fits these, these standards. Because to me, and this comes back to the accessibility question, um, it's, it can be difficult for students to, be, to have empathy <laughs> and to, to be sensitive to the specific needs of their peers. Um, and it can be difficult for teachers to have empathy across a broad classroom of students as well. And it's especially difficult, I think, when you're put in a position to have empathy for someone who is uh, coming at the contact, content from a different perspective um, or with, with different ability or capability or uh, background. I, th I think it's a good, I mean, in terms of ways that I think about this when I'm doing stuff in the classroom is that, um, you know, obviously I want them to learn the content that we're supposed to cover that we plan to cover in the semester, but I'm also thinking about it and maybe this ties in a little bit to experiential assessment, but I'm also thinking of the classroom as a microcosm or a smaller scale of the world. Right. So, um, they students will end up working with a variety of individuals and how do we help them in a seemingly low stakes environment, which is a college classroom compared to life, um, or, you know, it's, it's a learning space. And so how do we teach them the content of the discipline, but also teach them how, what do you do with that? And how do you interact with other people with that content? 
um, based on how, you know, if there's students with disabilities or students that don't have disabilities, like how, how does that all kind of work together? You know, what does that look like? Because as they, as students graduate and leave, um, you know, we all know that we've had different experiences in life. And so I like to think of it that way too, is that it's, it's helping them learn how to be in the world, be a yeah. good citizen, be a good citizen in the world. What I, what I think is really interesting is here we are in an assessment episode and we've been talking for what, 10, 15 minutes now. And all we're talking about is communication. I mean, we're not, obviously we're going to get into talking about assessment design and, and, um, you know, thinking about validity and stuff that we talked about last week, but underpinning all of that is just the ability to communicate clearly with your students and have your students communicate communicate clearly with you and with each other in a uh, fair and, and kind way. I think so often that comes up. I mean, that's the business we're in without knowing that we're in it. Like, like this idea that, you know, learning design is exactly that. Like, you know, I, I, I was reading recently, well, this is a whole side thing I probably shouldn't go into it, but, you know, I was reading a book recently that was looking at, like, why to be intentional about setting personal goals. I was like, to lower the risk of failure, like, to to be more intentional about the limited resources you have to, to give towards it, and it helps you to be better about it. And I, I started to think about that in the context of courses, uh, like learning design, and the same notion that we have to communicate because it helps our students to do better, that it helps to lower the risk of, of anyone's failure, teacher, student, peer-to-peer, kind of included all in one. So one of the things we were talking about with this was was resources, like favorite resources for activities and things like that. And there are two that I love to tell faculty uh, when I, when I uh, talk with them about formative assessment. Uh, the first is classroom assessment techniques. Um, which is a book by uh, by Thomas Angelo and, and uh, Patricia Cross. Um, and this came out in the late, I think the first one was in the late 90s. Um, and there was a second book that I think it was Patricia Cross was on, which is Collaborative Learning Techniques with a couple of other co-authors. And those are my two favorite books to tell faculty to get because they have all sorts of ideas depending on your goals of formative activities you can do with certain purposes and goals in mind um, that, that are kind of tried and, and tested in, in a classroom context. So I just want to toss that in there. And a lot of it is geared towards like peer-to-peer uh, types of activities. When I'm thinking of formative assessment, the uh, kind of go-to thing that I refer to is uh, Paul Black and Dylan William, um, Inside the Black Box. Again, it's getting old. It's from the 90s. Um, but it's, they to me are kind of like the seminal piece on what formative assessment is and why it is a valuable thing to bring into the classroom. Um, and then Black has gone on and published a whole bunch of stuff. Well, both of them have published a whole bunch of stuff on the back end of it. But inside the black box is kind of their. Uh, foundational work and there's you know if you google that there's tons of good um summary videos and stuff surrounding it now too so you don't have to invest a whole ton of time to kind of get your get a sense of what they're saying jeremy i'm curious you've worked in k-12 and you've worked in higher ed for a while you've been a classroom teacher you've been thinking about assessment for a long time 
um, longer probably compared to your time thinking and working around accessibility. So I'm curious if you've noticed at any point yet, and I know I'm putting you on the spot with this question, but um, have you noticed your thoughts on assessment changing at all or being impacted by your work in accessibility? So here's the weird thing with coming from K-12. Accessibility is at the forefront in K-12, but it's so supported systematically through the special ed programming in the school. You know, so it, it runs the gamut from having a piece of paper with, that's got some accommodations listed that you need to afford to a student who requires them, all the way to having a teacher in the classroom, a, a second teacher in the classroom specifically there to support one or many students who have uh, 504 plans or IEPs or whatever the case may be. So all through my K-12 career, and it wasn't K-12, it was high school, I always had this huge support system. If I had to give an assessment on whatever the unit was, there was always a special ed teacher working on the back end with the students specifically to help them in advance of the assessment but then also working with me to say, hey, maybe think about doing it this way or maybe think about doing it that way. And I never, in my 12 years as a high school teacher, never thought of it as accessibility specifically. Then I move into higher ed and that support is completely gone. If, you know, in terms of this, the very visible nature of that support as a interaction between, a, between two professionals supporting a student. The, the support is there for the student if they seek it out, um, but it's not there for the instructor. You couple that with the demands of higher ed instruction, and unlike you know, most of the professors that I work with are teaching large classes, 60 or more students. So most of them are thinking of assessments strictly in terms of like end of unit exams, midterms and finals. And to them, it's all just about, you know, efficiency and, you know, we can't spend more than a day on this thing. So I'm just going to give them a test and that's it. That then becomes really burdensome on the students with who require accommodation. And it gets this whole new network and framework around it of accessibility. So it was really, it's kind of interesting. That's a very wordy answer to say that in, in K-12, it's just built into the system. And in higher ed, it just isn't. So we need to be much more explicit about working with faculty members to define what it is, define what the needs are, and and provide strategies for them. Totally. Did I, I don't even know if I answered your question. No, you did. Because um, I'm trying to think about how, in thinking about supporting the student as they move from uh, K, the K-12 environment to higher ed so they've also become accustomed to that totally and so how do we what do we do when we think about our assessments it's interesting because my my wife is also a professor in, in education so she's a teaching teachers how to teach and the most common thing that she runs into especially with her um, freshman students is parents asking for more information than the college can give um, because there's this norm in place all the way through the senior year that the parents are advocating for their child 
to get the, to make sure the accommodations are in place and to make sure that everything is as equitable as it can be. Um, and then, you know, one summer lapses, they go to a new campus and the parents don't change their behavior. And my wife has to come back and say, uh, I can't tell you that information. I can't tell you what we're doing in class. You know, I can't tell you what the, what your student's grade is on that test. So it's, so that is an indicator to me that it's a real culture shock for students when they arrive on campus. Um, pro probably more so on campuses where there isn't a robust um, resource center um, and more so for students who don't have, who haven't in some way been oriented into the existing resources. And then you couple that with faculty members who just don't know, who, who just don't have it as, as being kind of forefront in their in their mind either. I don't know, we're a maybe we're a little far afield, but. Yeah, I know I kind of took us that way, but so what does that, I mean, what does that mean? How does that impact our assessments? So, I mean, the, the point you made about um, large classrooms is very real. I mean, you know, especially a campus as large as ours, many, many classes are large. And so how do we, how do we kind of bring those two ideas together in that you have just a specific amount of time or you're looking at efficiency because you have a large class, you might not have a TA. How, how do we encourage things like empathy in those spaces? I mean, I imagine it's through, you know, some of the more informal interactions peer to peer, which we've been talking about. Um, you know, what is, what does that look like? What are some other ways that we can encourage that, feedback to keep happening in, in that sense we, it might be something we're talking about next time when we're talking about classroom culture where you can't really have a healthy formative assessment environment without especially in these large classes without intentionally establishing a culture um well a, a culture of care in the classroom right i think on the on the summative side and maybe this is you know a transition into thinking more about summative assessment in large classes specifically, those types of assessments, and Adam, I can't remember the word that you said that they were. Educate, educative. Yeah, but for Versus uh, uh, <coughs> uh, auditive is auditive. the word that, that, um, that Fink uses. Like this notion that's backward looking, that it's at the end of learning something that's telling you something at the end of something yeah, so how do you do that in an equitable and accessible way? In a well, he, he also takes a step further and ties it into grading. Like, the only reason we assess isn't for learning necessarily. It's because we have to sign a grade at the end of a class. Like, Unfortunately, that's often what happens on campus, right? <laughs> yeah. I think the other thing, too, and I don't know where this comes up, but I, I think there are lots of ways to potentially scale that type of valuable feedback in a larger setting especially thinking about the peer to peer piece and the the um not necessarily peer to peer but like near peer kind of idea like we've had a lot of success with bringing in former students who have taken the class before in like a facilitative role for learning especially in active learning classes and but even some 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 larger humanities classes that um could benefit from like a smaller discussion breakout kind of model but i think that combined with some of the ways that you you think about assessments overall that, you know, students need to have 
they need to have feedback, um, especially before. I mean, one thing I talk to people, regardless of class size, is like give students feedback before add drop. You know, like give them the ability to to know what they need to do to do better, or how much they need to do to get better, um, before they're then kind of caught at the end with with a, a you know a DFW kind of thing. And do and give them that feedback in a way that they can consume it and a, in a way that they can act on it. And that is where I think the universal design and the accessibility piece really comes in. You know, it's, it's gotta be something that is of value to the students, not just, you know, kind of spit back at them. So one thing that I did um, to try to expedite the evaluation process on my end, but still offer meaningful feedback when I was teaching writing at the higher ed level well, I did this in K-12 too, but I started um, recording myself. Well, I think I mentioned this before. I was recording myself as I was editing students' papers. So they'd submit a digital you know, Word document, and I'd do a screen capture and narrate my thought process as I was reading it and marking it up um, so that the students had kind of a multimodal way. They'd get my notes, and they'd also get this kind of audio of me speaking through my thought process about what I saw. Um, even just simply reading back, uh, you know, a phrase or a sentence or a paragraph to them so they can hear, oh, yeah, that's awkward phrasing. I see what he means when he says awkward phrasing. I think that's what's in what's built into that is this kind of multimodal differentiated way to provide the feedback so that students coming at it from various perspectives still find value in it and can act on it in a meaningful way. So we talk a lot about differentiation in terms of the activities we do and differentiated, you know, providing choice um, for the assessment itself. But I think it's valuable too to think about providing choice on the feedback side. You know, I can consume the feedback I'm getting by reading it, by listening to it, by watching the video, uh, by conversing face to face. Um, but I, I will have a, I'll have multiple ways to get this feedback. And I think the key with that, because I also have heard faculty who do that um, at MSU and then at, um, at other institutions I've been at or that um, colleagues have been at. But I think when people hear those suggestions, they're like, oh my gosh, that's going to take so much time. So I have to write something and record something and blah, blah, blah. And I always like to say, you don't have, we're not saying you do that for every single assessment. Um, maybe you do recordings for one of them. You pick one of the papers or one of the projects for the semester and provide audio feedback that way. Um, for another one, you provide written or, you know, whatever that looks like. So, you, um, pick, you know, like, just tell me how you like to get feedback. Yeah. And if you're in a really huge class and you've got a couple TAs, like maybe you assign different TAs to provide feedback in different ways. Exactly. And they can become kind of expert in one specific mode. Exactly. For all you listeners out there, Bruce is really interjecting himself <laughs> in the conversation. Bruce, Bruce, the cat. Bruce the cat. Bruce, who you can sometimes find photos of on my Twitter feed if you want to know what he looks like, but he is gray and white, and he does not ever leave my side. Anyway. <laughs> so what's it look like if you're actually giving a final exam or you know, like a big summative assessment? What's it look like at the higher ed level to make that as accessible as possible. But not knowing who's coming in your room in the fall, how can you plan? I know on the last day of class, I gotta give a final exam. I want it to be accessible. What do I do? So I think one piece of it, um, 
So I, I was recently at this presentation uh, done by Eric Moore, who's uh, an instructional accessibility specialist. Do you know Eric? Yeah, he's great. He's not a, yeah, Eric's yeah. awesome. So Eric is at um, the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and he presented this session um, about effective goals and, and aligning those goals with assessments uh, under UDL. And he had this awesome quote that I kind of loved, and I think it gets right at what you're, what you're trying to ask um, here, Jeremy. Um, so he has this notion that like one quality of, of a universally designed assessment is that you have, you build in flexibility so as to maximize the validity of the assessment. And I think that's kind of an interesting idea because underneath that he, he put a couple of qualifiers depending on your goals. And this all is built off of having really clear objectives where, where you understand uh, where the, the flexibility leverage points might be, so to speak. Um, that you have a clear continuum of what that flexibility looks like and what it could be. So maybe for whatever reason, whether that's a constraint of the size of the class or the, the fact that you're prepping your students for some sort of high stakes assessment for licensure or something later on, you have to give a final exam that, that is uh, similar to a final exam. Uh, some of the things that I think about is try and make sure that students aren't seeing that question type and format for the first time. So like if there are ways that you can do so, like in the formative assessments, try and make sure that you, you do that early on. Uh, one thing he talked about specifically was giving options to understand the directions. And I think that same thing could be kind of generalized to the structure of the, the document overall. Um, and some of that comes up via accommodations, but you might, you might give choice for that as well. So you might give students the option of taking it online or on paper uh, so that they can uh, you know, use a tool to read them the directions versus, you know, reading the directions um, on paper or something like that. Um, you might give them options for how, in the, uh, along those same, line, same lines, how they compose the actual assessment. Um, so like, you know, having, having options, options with that um, could, be, could be possible too. But one thing that I thought was really interesting, this kind of gets a, I don't know if this supports or, or kind of challenges the underlying assumption of like having to give a, a, a summative uh, assessment that is more traditional paper pencil kind of a thing. But um, one thing he points out is like, if you have the flexibility to do so, um, perhaps give students uh, opportunities for, for performing that understanding in a different way. And I think there's some really interesting ways of, of potentially thinking about that, um, unless it has to be some sort of uh, really traditional paper pencil exam there there might be ways to play with that and in some cases he even pointed out the idea that maybe you give options for the outcomes to some extent like a project I mean I see so many classes in the social sciences and humanities um, at Dartmouth where students have a really clear option at that point for for something that they would be uh, be motivated and, and engaged and able to persist through uh, based around their own needs for for what they're coming in with and where they're trying to go um, and I think the last thing I would just mention, going back to that original point about the accessibility of the directions, like run it through accessibility checkers and things like that in Microsoft Word or other tools to, to make sure that's created in a way where you're not limiting access, you're thinking carefully about visuals, you're thinking carefully about the structure of it. Yeah, I think that's really critical. Um, so I'm hearing, you know, practice these things in advance. So in the sense of, you know, we talk about something being auditive, audit yourself um, in, before you dump these assessments on students. You know, prepare them, check them, make sure that they're accessible. 
but also prepare the students for it. So if you're going to use technology because you think that uh, technology might make the assessment more accessible or it might offer some differentiation for the students or it might uh, make the feedback more timely, great. You know, go for it. There's tons of resources out there, but don't just spring that on the classroom um, on the day of the test. Uh, run it through, run it by the class, prepare them for them, you know, involve them in the planning process leading up to that assessment and uh, kind of audit the process as you go to make sure that everyone has fair access to it. I guess one thing I would just add on to that, like, I, I think one thing I think a lot about when I'm talking to faculty about assessments is like the notion of performance and authentic assessments. Um, in, both from the standpoint of validity, like, you know, are, are you actually measuring what you're trying to do in a situation that approximates an actual situation that the student encounters in a professional setting or in your, in your disciplinary setting or something like that? Um, I think that's another piece of this, too, is like, you know, think really carefully about what types of information resources somebody would have when they would have to apply this after the class. And I think in a lot of those cases, you kind of get into figuring out what are the types of questions and tasks that you want students to do. And, and maybe that is kind of like a final assessment that's timed in some of those things, but maybe you think about the different resources students might have on hand or, or the ways that they might work individually or together on something like that or, or staging that out in certain ways. Um, so those might be just, just food for thought when you're, when you're going through those summative assessment plannings too. It's interesting, Kate, I'm sure that you've run into this at MSU as well, but it seems like a very common um, accommodation that's required or requested is extra time, extended time. So that brings up a couple points. One, does a timed assessment really match what, like as Adam was saying, does that really match what students will encounter in the real world? If so, okay, fine. You know, let's make sure that it is accurately reflecting that and two if not then is there a better or different way to think about providing an assessment in an untimed you know manner are we, are we simply timing it because we're so constrained by the semester schedule right the, the notion that we oh it's exam day we have to get it all done this one day right and exactly teacher teachers often push back you know not that, they, not that they say, no, I'm not going to provide extended time, um, but I've heard, you know, kind of horror stories of teachers saying, well, that's not fair for all the students who have to complete it on time. Why does this one person get extra time? Well, and I, again, I think, it's, go ahead. I think it goes back to objectives, which is what Adam's been saying and what we've been talking about since the beginning is, I mean, what is it that you're, what is, what is it that is, what you want students to learn or get out of your course. And if those have to be in a timed sort of situation, like you said, fine, you know, we'll work with that. Um, but if it's any number of other sorts of objectives that aren't based on time, you could end up getting an, an entire class back, you know, one, one course that you would normally dedicate to a test. If there's another way to assess that doesn't have to take place in class, that gives you another whole class for lecture for, um, activities or you know presentations or, or something like that so I think you know thinking creatively and reassessing what is it that I want people to get out of this course um, and kind of applying that across the board yeah it comes down to equity too I mean like 
I think one of the things that we don't talk enough about when we talk about testing accommodations is that testing accommodations come about because individuals with, with an identified and, and, um, and legally protected uh, uh, need for an accommodation have a barrier that they're facing in a classroom. And like, that's the, the big takeaway there is like that the reason why they need accommodation in that case is because it creates a barrier that would interfere with their ability to perform their understanding in that, in that example. But I think one of the challenges, and I was talking to an accessibility colleague about this the other day, like that, that's often a worst case scenario based on evaluating an individual at length. So, you know, that might look really different in a math class versus like a history class. Yeah. And that that same time and a half or double time accommodation might come through in both ways. Um, but ultimately that comes back to an issue where there was an issue of equity to begin with. It's really problematic when people start throwing around, and I hear this all the time, you know, that student then has an unfair advantage. Well, maybe you're not setting up your other students for success either. Because if you're giving a three hour exam and then you're giving double time, I'm guessing that the student taking that over six hours is not going to be a good performance either. Like maybe you have to go back to the drawing board on that. And it's why we need to think about assessment from day one. You know, we can't just say, Oh, it's going to be the last day of the class and we're going to cram it all in on the last day. No, you should be building towards having a full understanding of students ability to meet the course objectives over the course of the entirety of the semester. Is there value in putting that all on the last day? Maybe, maybe there is, you know, maybe they need to pass the CPA exam and you're trying to mimic that environment and you're finally fine, cool. Um, but have a rationale for it and make sure that it's an equitable um, and valid assessment that you ultimately come, come up with. We didn't get into uh, too much discussion about experiential learning or experiential ex assessment, but I wonder if that might be a topic that we can touch on next time when we talk about classroom culture, um, because it does speak to kind of the broader sense of the day-to-day goings-on in the in, in the classroom. Totally. Yeah, we could, we could also break that as an episode. I think that that could be like experience, like issues of of accessibility and experiential learning could be could be really interesting. It yeah, for be. sure. And Kate, you do a lot with like study away and experiential learning, kind of the macro sense of yeah going going places. Yep. Uh, we could even pull that in too. So maybe that's a, a conversation for another time. Yeah. Not, we'll leave it at, as this. Uh, um, Hopefully we've been able to dig in a little bit into formative and summative assessment and the way that we speak about those things and plan for those things to create a culture of care and caring assessment, or as Adam said, loving assessment. Um, and uh, hopefully you'll tune in next time. So again, I'm Jeremy. I'm Kate. And I'm Adam Nemiroff. Uh, thanks for listening to Teach With Care. We'll talk to you next time. See you soon. Bye.